Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your mercies that renew every morning as we reflect on Christ and him crucified, that he lived the life that we never could and he died the death that we certainly deserved. And we just thank you that we have life and life abundantly through him and by him. We love you. We thank you for revealing yourself in your word. We thank you so much for for being exactly who you promised you said you would be. I know oftentimes we forget that, but let it be a reminder of who you truly are here tonight. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I wanna start off by speaking about uh, life verses. Two weeks ago I was reflecting a lot on what happened seven years ago when the Lord brought me to faith. And two of the, the verses that come to mind, the two of the verses that held me in that time were Psalm 34, 18 and Luke 9, 23. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Luke 9, 23 says, if anyone wishes, if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Those verses, as are all life verses for everyone, um, resonate for some reason. Whether it's they held you at that time, they give you reassurance, they give you knowledge of who Christ was, and gave you strength. These are the two that resonated in my heart at the tender age of 18, as Josh says. It wasn't long after one particular night that I was on a, on a conference call with Josh, our friend Matt, and Craig. Um, I met Josh and Craig at the exact same time, almost seven years ago today. And so Psalm 34, 18 taught me something right off the bat about who God was, and that is that he was near, that in my crushed spirit, that God was near and that he was going to save me. And so because of that, why wouldn't I want to desire to know him? And so then I was led to Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I knew that it was not going to be an easy thing. For an 18 year old who was off in college about a few months into the first semester, that did it that did it. So it's been seven years of, by God's grace, faithful obedience, broken repentance, and way too much backsliding. But by his grace, this is why I asked for your favor. That's where I come from. So to stand here before all of you today, it's humbling to say the least. And so speaking of life verses, Paul has one, but he didn't come up with it on his own. He wasn't reading scripture and realized, oh man, this really, this hit me and becomes a mantra in his life. That wasn't his experience. In fact, it wasn't even given to him. It was given to someone else, but it described exactly what Paul's life was supposed to look like from there on out. Acts chapter nine talks about Saul of Tarsus's conversion. 
in the rest of the New Testament from their names in Paul. And so his life verse is given to Jesus, or his life verse is given by Jesus to a man named Ananias. Jesus comes to Ananias in a dream and he says, um, there's a man who, this kind of uh, summary, there's a man who, who is gonna come to you and you need to baptize him and you need, to, you need to go to him, you need to serve him. And Ananias responds like, no, I know exactly who that is. He's a persecutor of the church. And not only is he a persecutor of the church, he has much more power here where I am. He can easily use his resources to persecute me and persecute everyone that is around me. And so Jesus applies Paul's life verse. And he says um, in Acts 19, 15 through 16, he says, go, speaking to Ananias, he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This sets the tone of everything, every, every little bit of Paul's ministry. He was to bear Christ's name and it was gonna be through suffering. Christ didn't apply this to him out of punishment or because of, of the persecution that he, that he was in. Sorry, I just got distracted because I saw my parents walk in. Uh, yeah. My parents, everyone. <clears throat> Thank you. So this sets the tone for Paul's ministry. All of his letters, he wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. So now you get to see that this is exactly everything that Paul is, is going to embody. He was, he was meant to bear Christ's name and how much he must suffer for his name's sake, for his glory. And I would argue that this is our life too. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is our life too. Our life is supposed to be a bearing of Christ's name through our suffering, for his name's sake, as never for ours. So we turn to our text today. If you have an outline, I know it's kind of small. I didn't think about it sending it to Josh through my phone, so it's very small print. So hopefully you can read it. But the title of tonight's message is The Joyful Sufferer. And I subtitled it, Never Underestimate the Power of an Example. So in Philippians 1, there are five aspects of Paul's character that provide the church at Philippi, and I would argue that all of us as well, powerful motivation to suffer joyfully. So point number one, thanksgiving. The joyful sufferer is to give thanks. He is to be expressive in his gratitude. If not, it is a hindrance to the gospel and its message. Point number two, prayer. The joyful sufferer prays. He prays for the growth and the maturity of others. He understands the miracle that is praying. Point number three, exaltation. The joyful sufferer exalts. He magnifies Christ. He rejoices in the gospel message because in it, whether through life or through death, Christ is going to be magnified and the gospel will be proclaimed. Point number four, endurance. The joyful sufferer endures. The joyful sufferer remains in his current circumstances, in his per current persecution for the joy and progress of others. 
He's not worried about everyone else. Point number five, encouragement. The joyful sufferer encourages. He is to exhort and he calls for unity. Any disunity, any division in the church breaks his or her heart. So now we turn to our passage here. Just a back, quick background on Philippians. We meet, we are, we are introduced to the Philippians, to the church at, at Philippi in Acts 16. Uh, I won't read the, the entire passage, but basically in summary, Acts chapter 16, Paul meets Timothy. Paul has a vision to go to Macedonia. He arrives at Philippi, which was the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And there he meets Lydia, who um, is running a, a, a synagogue at that point, a house of prayer, and she converts. Her and her household is converted. A slave girl is later converted as well. The owners of that slave girl recognize that they're not going to have any more profit from that slave girl. So that's when they imprison Paul. They beat Paul and Timothy with rods and they throw him in prison. And so while they're in prison, the Philippian jailer, as some of you may know the story of the Philippian jailer, Paul and Timothy are singing hymns singing praises to God in prison and a Philippian jailer is converted. And so here in Acts 16, we see the church at Philippi established. Paul's not on his own. He is with, he is with uh, Timothy. And so that's in AD 49. Paul, then he writes the letter to the Philippians in AD 61 or 62. That's, that's gonna hold a lot of importance because of some of the things that he says in the opening in his letter. And we'll get to that here in a bit. But Paul writes from a Roman prison, more so house arrest because he had some freedom because they were able to have, he was able to have visitors. They were able to provide for him food, drink, whatever he needed. And so his experience in the Roman prison is seen in Acts 28. And so point number one, we'll begin at verse one. The joyful sufferer is confidently thankful. He is constantly giving thanks. Verse one, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, typical Pauling authorship, typical Pauling address, opening address. A, a few things to mention about these, about these few verses. He meant, notice that Paul doesn't automatically describe who he is. He says, Paul and Timothy, usually if, you're, if you notice his other letters, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And if he's authoring it with someone or if he um, partners up with somebody, somebody in the, the letter, he, he's, he mentions their names afterwards. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, whatever it may be, Timothy, bond servant of Christ. But here Paul includes himself and Timothy in the same line and combines them as slaves of Christ Jesus. The reason for this is because he's going to send Timothy later in the future. So he wants to let them know that I have a close partner that I'm sending you with. Remember Timothy. He was with you when you first were converted. He holds a he he holds him in high regard because he served them in that way. He had a significant role in the church plant and speaks highly of him in, in Philippians 2, verse 22. 
where he says, like a child, Timothy served me as a child serves his father. Notice that Paul doesn't say that he's an apostle. To the Philippians, he had no need to confirm his apostleship to them. And we'll see that here in a bit on why that's important. Rather, he doesn't say that he's an apostle. He calls them slaves. He calls themselves slaves. The word slave indicates that a total subservience, a total allegiance to the master. That holds significant importance because Philippi was a Roman colony. It wasn't too far from Rome. And this is where retired Roman officials would, would go to spend their retirement. So a lot of it was Roman emperor worship. And so whenever someone says Caesar is Lord, or whenever someone says Jesus is Lord, it's a complete, a complete affront, a complete offense to everything that Rome stands for. And even Jesus in, in, verse two, uh, in chapter two, verse seven, it, it describes him being a slave, a servant. So Philippi, like I said, was a miniature Rome. So whenever people visited Philippi, they were to say, wow, this reminds me of Rome. This reminds me of the blessed citizenship that I have in Rome. So likewise, when Paul mentions uh, the Philippians, the church at Philippi was essentially supposed to be an, a smaller heaven because later in his letter, he says, you are citizens of heaven, conduct yourselves in this way like you are citizens of heaven. And so he's calling upon this, this new citizenship because in the same way that they worshiped the Roman emperor is the same way that they, that, that they are to worship um, Christ and him crucified. So that's the first couple verses. So never, never overlook uh, the opening address because it's always calling you to something more. Here, when the Philippians read this letter that Paul sent them, someone who, who provided for them, someone who, who ministered to them and helped in their spiritual growth, right away he's calling them to something more and that is to be um, slaves of Christ Jesus. Verses three and four. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So Paul immediately opens up with thanksgiving. So right away, we we're able to see that this is a letter of thanksgiving. He's thanking them up and down, left and right. And so he remembers and reflects and thanks God at every mention of him. I would ask you, like, have you ever thanked God for, for being reminded of something previously that happened in your life? With joy, and it provokes you to prayer. This is exactly what Paul is thanking God for. He says, I thank God whenever I reflect on my time with you, because these memories bring me so much joy. I remember my time with you. I remember on a lot of my baseball trips, um, I, I traveled a lot and I was always grateful when my teammates and their families would house me and provide for me and give me rides to the airport. And it was, it was something that I was, it moved me because they didn't need to do that. And my parents as well were very 
grateful for that, but there's something in you that happens when you understand that you really didn't deserve something and you reflect on it. Similar to when Paul was in prison, they provided for him, the Philippians provided for him. So whenever they, they come to remembrance, Paul thanks God, it leads to joyful prayer. So I'd ask, when was the last time you told someone, I thank God for you. I'm so grateful that you're in my life. In fact, I thought about you the other day and I just began smiling. Thank you so much. And it's not favor for favor. It's not, I scratch your back, I sc you scratch mine. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about how he didn't deserve it. And so likewise, it's similar to how For children, it's, it's, hard for, it, it's hard to teach them gratitude. How many times do you find yourself saying to your child, I wish you just knew, I wish you just understood. You're, you're actually wanting them to be grateful. If you had a rough upbringing, that hits home. It hits home when you realize everything that you've, you've put into it, put into raising them, put into disciplining them, and you don't get anything back. It's not like you do it for that reason to get uh, recognition, but you just, you want their heart to be changed. You want them to realize like, hey, life is bigger than you. And so what gave Paul so much joy and reason to thank God whenever the Philippians came to mind? What was it? What was it that moved him so Drastically, we find out in verse five, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That word participation is a beautiful word. In the Greek, it's koinonia, which means intimate fellowship with fellow believers, a partnership. This is the heart of true fellowship. True fellowship is self-sacrificial conformity to a shared vision. You guys have a shared vision and you do whatever you can to do that, to engage with that. And so the Philippians with Paul, they provided for him financial aid, personal care, personal ministering, ministering to him, essential provision. And all of it, Paul rejoices in. From the first day until now is an indication that if you, were, if you remember uh, the dates that I gave you, he established a church in AD 49 and he's writing this letter in 6062. That means, that they provided for him for almost 10 years straight. Paul says from the first day until now, that is consistent. They were consistently providing for him. They were consistently being conformed into Christ's image together in the midst of persecution. Other uses of koinonia in the New Testament are Acts 2.42, where it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, there's that word koinonia, to, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Another one is 1 Corinthians 1, 9, where it says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Koinonia is a call to unity. And this is exactly what Paul is so excited to express his thanks in, his thanksgiving in, the fact that they have provided for him when he, when they, when he didn't deserve it. So he was thankful to them for their consistent love and fellowship. 
So because of their incredible display of gospel fellowship, Paul says something pretty groundbreaking, a pretty uh, popular verse. Verse six, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. Paul was confident, meaning absolutely certain, completely unassailably confident because of their fellowship. Oftentimes we think of, when, when we read that verse, we often think of, of whatever, whatever I go through, God is gonna preserve my salvation. We think about it as salvation and that's not wrong to think about, but it's in the context of 10, 12 years of consistent fellowship with him, self-sacrificial fellowship with him. Like our, our pastor Josh often says, faith is always caught in the act. This was 10, 12 years of consistent faith. That, that, that phrase, good work, is the, it, it alludes back to the creative power of God. He created something in, in you. He created something in the Philippians and it was on full display for Paul. Have you been discouraged when you see or partake in divisions in the church? Does it discourage you? Does it cause you to think, oh my goodness, Lord, come quickly. Your church isn't going to survive. This is your assurance right here. This is your assurance that the good work that God started, not only in the Philippians, but in you, because of your consistent fellowship, that he's going to complete it. God's gonna do it. It will survive and continue. This consistent fellowship will continue because of God Almighty, not by your human ambition or your strength. God's going to do it. He's not just going to preserve it, but he's going to perfect it. That word in the Greek is the same word that is used when Jesus was hanging on the cross, where he says, to tell us die. The, the root is teleos, which means to accomplish, to perfect, to bring to an end, to complete. So in the darkness of doubt of the future survival of this, of this church, of this good work, all of that vanishes when Paul reflects on the brilliance of that final day, on that final day of Christ Jesus. So this, this right here. Yes, it gives, gives you assurance of your salvation. Absolutely, 100% will say yes and amen to that. But it's also a reassurance that God is going to preserve his church. So no matter what type of division happens in the church between different denominations, God is going to preserve it. And that church is something to rejoice over. So Paul then continues on why it seems necessary to feel such a confidence. Harkens back to the creative power of God. It's almost boastful, but here's why. Verse seven, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. There's that that word partakers is, is a form of koinonia, again, that fellowship. But this time it has a different form, which mean, it has a different meaning 
which means joint partners. It's more of a partnership, not so much godly fellowship. It's more of a partnership, a fellowship, companion. So when you think of the word partnership, what do you think? What comes to mind? When I think of partnership, I think of uh, business partners. I scratch, your bar, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. My strengths will benefit you. Your strengths will benefit me and we will benefit together. But that's the biblical understanding of what partnership is, especially here in this context, is that they're certainly benefiting from each other's gifts. Paul ministered to them. He walked with them, established that church, and he benefited off of what they were providing him. But Paul's joy here, his source of joy is not relishing in what he's benefited from them. He says partakers of grace. They shared not only in each other's gifts, but they shared in what God had done for them. That's koinonia. So it's not primarily what they did for each other. They were reflecting and they had this godly fellowship because of what God had done for them. That word defense, the defense of the gospel is apologia, where we get the word apologetics. It is a speech in defense. So this is what probably landed Paul in prison. He was defending the only true gospel. And that word confirmation means to make firm, to establish, to clarify which is probably another reason what landed him in prison because when people would say Caesar is Lord and start worshiping, Paul probably confirmed and clarified it and defended the one true gospel and said, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord and we serve him and we are slaves to him, not Caesar, not our current government. So in both of those things, in his imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel that landed him in prison, the Philippians did not waver. And this church, this right here is what Paul was rejoicing in. This right here is the motivation to say, I am 100% confident that God is going to finish what he started in you. It is in the context of biblical fellowship. It was because of this fellowship that Paul was so confident in the good work God had begun. And he even goes a step further. Verse eight, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He essentially says, I'm so confident in what I just told you. I'm so confident in what God had just started in you. God can testify. That's pretty remarkable. Can you just take a moment to reflect on the Philippians' faithfulness, on the faithfulness of the current church? Can people say that about you? Like me, reflecting on the seven years of salvation, of walking with the Lord, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to be that confident but I can say that about Pastor Dave. I can say that about Pastor Josh. I can say that about a lot of you, but that's because of the consistent fellowship. That's where your assurance lies. And so if you constantly waver in your assurance of salvation, be encouraged that if you still, if you still feel convicted about certain sins, about certain things that come out of your mouth, be assured, don't be discouraged by that. That's a good thing. Um, my mother-in-law actually painted a, a wonderful picture 
of, of what conviction looks like, what it feels like. She said conviction is like a cube that's nestled right in your stomach, right in, the, in your gut. And whenever you sin, that cube turns just a little more. And it, it doesn't feel good. You can imagine a cube being in your stomach and it turning. It's not going to feel good. And so the more you sin, the more you willfully sin, the more it gets worn down, the easier it feels, the less convicted you feel. And I just think that's a wonderful picture of that. So if you are still feeling convicted of your sin, I'm like, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. I should have witnessed to this person. Be encouraged because that is still God working in your life. So he goes, he stresses the intensity of his desire to be with them. He desires to fellowship with them. This desire goes beyond human, lim human limitations because he says that this is a desire that can only be divine. And that is defined by Christ Jesus. He said the affection of Christ Jesus. The word affection is kind of interesting word. It actually means bowels, intestines. So what does that mean? It's, it's essentially the source of your deep-seated compassions. Have you guys ever felt butterflies before? Or, or immense anger or pain or grief? You don't, you don't feel it in your mind. It's not something that's just on, my, on your mind. It almost makes you feel sick. That is your affection. That same affection is the same affection that Paul had for these people. And because he's able to bring God to the stand and say, God can testify of how I feel about these people. Jesus, in the same way, feels about you. That deep-seated desire, deep gut, intestine feeling Jesus has for you. And Paul shares that not only with Jesus, but he shares that for these precious people to him. So to recap point number one, the joyful sufferer, if you are to suffer joyfully, you are to be thankful. Understanding God's grace through the blessed partnership that he has provided, he has provided you the great gift of fellowship with the church, the bride of Christ. This is the visible gratitude expressed in Christ-like affections. So if you just come to church and, you know, sit in the back not really engage with anyone, not really serve. You are doing yourself, you're doing the other people around you, and you are doing God a disservice. It is a precious gift to serve the church. And honestly, my life has been radically changed once I started serving. And I know this isn't a sales pitch for you to, to get you to serve. This isn't, a, this isn't a guilt trip. It's like, oh, they got Chris, they got him. They got him, but honestly, um, I have the incredible privilege of, of teaching some of your children, and it has been an incredible blessing. And I pray that they have received just as much, even an ounce of what I've received from them. And I pray that that is a testament to the parents. So point number one, if you are to suffer joyfully, you are to be thankful. Point number two, the joyful sufferer prays. We now get a glimpse of Paul's prayer life. Verse nine, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So there's a common misconception that love and knowledge 
cannot be in the same cup. That love is based off a of feeling and that knowledge is just in your head, in your mind, that they are mutually exclusive. But I would argue that an incredible importance lies in this. Such an importance that it's, it hinges life and death. And I'll explain that here in a bit. Knowledge is so important. It is incredibly important. For example, I wouldn't be able to say that I truly love my wife, my parents, whoever it may be, if I didn't truly know them. If my father or whoever it may be was absent for such a long time and then automatically just pops them, pops up into my life, it wouldn't pack the same punch looking them in the eye and say that I, and, and being able to say that I love you. You, you, your affections grow when you get to know, truly know. It's not a superficial knowledge, but this knowledge, this biblical knowledge is a matter of life and death. Let's hear from Jesus himself. In John 17, verse three, he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, his prayer to the father, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have, whom you have sent. And then on the flip side of that, death. Another verse, another um, uh, saying of Jesus from the Sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. Many will say to me on that day, this is Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you workers of iniquity. So knowledge is pretty important. Not a superficial knowledge, not necessarily knowledge of God, but knowledge of God or knowing God on an intimate level. These are what I call informed affections. So true biblical knowledge of God is relational. It is a relationship filled with doctrinal, both doctrinal and practical truth. Truth that always has a purpose, and we'll see that here in a bit. That word discernment <clears throat> is a word that means intentional judgment. It's a little different from wisdom. Judgment or uh, discernment is closely related to wisdom, which is uh, wisdom is godly principles applied to daily living. But discernment in, is more specific to a specific situation. And hopefully this, this quote by Charles Spurgeon will be able to clear that up a little bit, um, give you the opportunity to understand this a little bit. Dis, uh, discernment, this is uh, Charles Spurgeon, discernment is not understanding the difference between right and wrong. It's understanding the difference between right and almost right. So this love that was to overflow through this intentional practice of truth, of knowledge, this love was to overflow through that knowledge. But why put such an emphasis on knowledge? Verse 11, or verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That word excellent means uh, things that are worth carrying, 
things that are worth embracing. Why? Why do we need this knowledge to figure out what's worth having, what's worth holding true to? And that is to be sincere. That word sincere is actually a very beautiful word. I'm gonna nerd out here in a bit because this is amazing. And I, I hope this, this catches your eye here. This word sincere is in the Greek is, is elikrines. It's a compound word. That first half of the word is, is helio, which means the sun's ray. Krine is actually a judge or approve. So what Paul says here is like, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, the things that are worth carrying in order to be sincere before Christ. So in the marketplace at that time, in order to test, test something, in order to understand if it was worth purchasing, whether it was a jar of honey or a brass or clay pot, they would hold it up to the sun. And if the, if the sun rays shone through it for the, for the brass kettle, it was worthless. It was of no use if the sun uh, shone through it. Similarly, with a jar of honey, if you held it up to the sun and it revealed excess wax, it was of no use. It was of no use. So this word actually literally means sun judged. So when Paul says, this is, this is what I pray, that you may increase, that your love may abound in knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent, the things worth carrying, in order to be sun judged, in order to be blameless before the day of Jesus Christ, in order for you to be approved, literally sun judged, approved to be purchased. And that is a be beautiful reassurance. This is, what, this is the nature of Paul's prayer. And how he... So when he says, until the day, this is endurance. You are to be found pure and blameless before Christ. This is what Paul, this is the heart of Paul's prayer life. He prays for their maturity in order to be able to stand before Christ, be sun judged and be blameless without fault, without reproach because of what God had done in you. So how is this possible? How can I possibly stand before Christ blameless? We understand that the nature and the standard of God is a standard of perfection. So how is this possible? Verse 11, having been filled, this is possible, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen, amen, and amen. Righteousness, if, everyone, if anyone ever asks you, what do I need to get to heaven? You can easily, right away, without having to get nervous, you can, either, either, you can easily say, perfect righteousness, blameless. And that is only possible through Christ's provision. John Calvin says, we are wild olive trees until we are grafted into Christ who by his living root makes us fruit-bearing branches. It is by him, it is only through him that we're able to be cloaked in his righteousness and be able to stand before, him, before God, blameless, literally sun-judged, approved, worthy to be purchased. And we know that he purchased us not by 
glass, clay pots, gold, or silver. He purchased us with his blood. A very, very high price. So now he points to his circumstances and how his life is to exalt and magnify Christ through those circumstances. Point number three, exaltation. The joyful sufferer exalts. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul seems to have a play on words because the word advance is prokope and the word hindrance is proskope. So when the Philippians read this, they must have heard the nature of, their, of his circumstances and say, he must say that what, is, what has actually happened to me has served as a hindrance to the gospel. But he doesn't say that. He says advancement. This is the response to his imprisonment. So how could his bondage, how could his imprisonment be uh, to serve to advance the gospel? This mighty missionary, the greatest missionary to have ever lived, I I would argue, was now in prison. So it was right to think that that him being in prison, that this man who was establishing churches all across the uh, Greco-Roman area, him being in prison was definitely going to hinder the gospel. So how could his bond, how could his bondage, how could his current circumstances possibly serve to advance the gospel? Verses 13 and 14. So that my imprisonment in the, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak, of, to speak the word of God without fear. This is how it advanced. It became known everywhere. It caused the Philippians to trust in God. And to to be honest, it fired them up. It fired them up because they they were to have far more courage to speak and to do it fearlessly. The Imperial Guard was essentially the secret police of Caesar's household. They were his special bodyguards. And so with Paul... Being in prison, proclaiming the gospel, the secret service of, their, of that time was saved. This is how, just a, a way that the gospel advanced. That word uh, for far more courage or without fear means to be bold, to endure, to endure fearlessly. Being imprisoned in a Roman prison it was easy to, to look at an imprisonment or someone who, who, who was imprisoned there and say, he is imprisoned with Caesar's chains. He is imprisoned by, his, by Caesar's will and by his power. But with Paul saying, no, it's actually served to advance the gospel. Paul is proclaiming Christ. These are Christ's chains. I am here by divine appointment. I am here because of his power and of his will. So I would ask you, church, have you, been, have you been influenced this way? Have you been around people who exhibit such a boldness and endurance in the midst of their trying circumstances and been motivated to continue preaching or to start preaching with boldness and without fear? 
Are you taking the steps to, to put yourself in those people's lives? And I would go as far as to say, have you, have you been that influence on, on others? Have you, have people been able to look at your life and say, wow, Christ-like endurance, Christ-like suffering, Christ chains on that man, on that woman. I remember watching a movie a long time ago called SWAT. And I, I reflect on, um, the movie is essentially about how this guy on the FBI's most wanted list is going to be transferred from one institution, from one correctional facility to the other. And so while he's being uh, transferred, um, he says into a news camera, anyone who breaks me out, I will give them $100 million. And so these little pockets of, of gang members, of... of uh, of cartels saw that news feed and were like, that's my money. I got to get that. So this proclamation by this man on the FBI's most wanted list proclaimed something and it mobilized all of these little pockets of people. This is exactly what Paul did. In his chains, he proclaimed the gospel, not just through his words, but through his actions, through the perception of his chains. And it mobilized the Philippians, and I just pray that it mobilizes you. That you live a life so much so that people are mobilized by what you're doing, that they're motivated by your boldness, that they are motivated by your fearlessness. So some recognize Paul's chains as divine appointment. Others see it as an opportunity to kick Paul while he's down. Verse 15, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So there are two preachers here, two types of preachers. Some who, who preach the gospel out of goodwill, out of love and pure motives of the heart, and others are preaching out of envy and strife, selfish ambition in order to distress Paul, in order to afflict him while he's in chains. They sought to afflict him. This envy was not by surprise. The gospel was successful in this place. The gospel literally penetrated Rome, the, the, the Roman emperor's secret service. So it's only natural to see that this was a powerful, powerful message. And so likewise, some of them see that power, see that glory, see the attention that Paul is getting and they want that. I don't believe that this is, that they're preaching, uh, that, they're, that they're preaching heresy. Um, Paul was definitely not going to um, allow that. They were just doing it. They were, they were preaching a biblical Christ, but they were doing it out of selfish motives, out of selfish ambition in order to distress Paul. They were crediting its success to themselves, the spread of the gospel. They were crediting it 
crediting it to themselves, hoping to cause Paul anger. So how does Paul respond? What's the focus of Paul's heart here? What is our focus? What is he the most concerned about? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. This is the heart of Paul's joy, that Christ, no matter what, whether you're doing it with selfish ambition or you're doing it out of pure motives, Christ, the biblical Christ is being proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I'm thankful for that. To be honest, this is a, a, a moment of transparency. Um, I avoid certain preaching for various reasons. Reasons that aren't justifiable, but um, nonetheless, I do judge with what I listen to. If, if I see that they have a smoking machine on stage, not having it. If I see that the lights dim down where I can't even read my Bible, that's not happening. If I see that he walks away too often away from the podium where his Bible or his iPad is, not having it. But studying this, it really, really humbled me. Because if Paul is having to deal with these people who are preaching out of selfish ambition, which they may, may have well could be, these people were preaching in these mega churches with these lavish light shows and all these other things. If they are preaching a biblical Christ, I need to rejoice. If Paul rejoices in the fact that these people are, are preaching a biblical Christ yet doing it out of selfish ambition and he rejoices, I am to rejoice as well. It was humbling but Paul would never condone a vital error to the gospel. So he doesn't mention it here. So they must be believers, but they're just preaching it in a, in a selfish way. So Paul transitions from his current circumstances to his future ones, still rejoicing in them, no matter how they may come. Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I, will not, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul is relying on their prayer. Paul is relying on both their prayer and the Holy Spirit's provision. Have you ever thought about what effects your prayer has on others? Do you see it as sustenance for other people? Do you even pray often enough to be able to reflect on your prayer life in that way? Paul here is relying not only on the, on the, on the power of the Holy Spirit, on what, he, on what the Holy Spirit provides, the strength, the endurance, the different perspective, the holy perspective, the eyes set on heaven, but he relies on their prayer because he understands the power in it. Paul's attitude is described as eagerly expectant, a hope, a hope set on the crucified Lord. So he relies on these two things with this type of attitude 
For what? In order to remain unashamed, to continue to boldly proclaim the message without hesitancy, without wavering. Why? Because it wasn't about him. That word exalted means to make great, to magnify, to lift up for all to see. And that is to be done whether in life and in death. So what does life and death life and death mean to Paul? Verse 21. A very well-known verse. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen, amen, and amen. For Paul, this is what life and death meant. Galatians 2.20 says, I, this is Paul writing, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself up for me. The recap of point number three, the joyful sufferer understands the true nature of his circumstances and rejoices in the fact that the gospel is going to be put on display for everyone to see. Christ is going to be exalted, absolutely magnified in his life and his death. Why? Because death for Paul is not just simply, it wasn't an escape from his current circumstances. It wasn't an escape. It wasn't a way out. It wasn't a cop out of life's burdens. He was to bear witness to Christ. That word witness is where we get the word martyr. Your life and in death, you are to testify of Christ, of his life, of his death and burial, burial and resurrection. A joyful sufferer understands that, that whether in life or death, Christ is going to be magnified, lifted up. So with the mention of life and death, Paul presents to us two directions, but there's a problem. He doesn't know which to choose. So that introduces point number four, endurance. The joyful sufferer endures. He remains, verses 22 and 23. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to, which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. There's these two choices, and it's not that Paul is discerning which to choose, but he's, he's coming to terms with what, whether remaining or what departing is going to mean. He obviously sees the greater glory that is set before him when he gets to heaven, and that is unity, complete unity with Christ. And he rightfully so describes it as that is much better than to remain in the flesh. But to remain, Paul says, if I remain, it'll be fruitful labor to me. Things are going to be done. The gospel is going to be proclaimed no matter what. Not only that is that he's going to witness God's gracious work as they continue in fellowship. So what do you think? Actually, I want to ask, pose a question. 
or point of reflection. So reflect on your current circumstances. Think about them long and hard and hear the heart of Paul in his circumstances. So what do you think Paul's going to choose? What does he conclude would be more beneficial? Verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul decides to remain, why? For you, for your encouragement. That word remain, the root of that word means is the same word used for abide. A, uh, a word that uh, John uses a lot in his gospel and in his letters. That word abide, it was kind of hard to understand what it meant, but one of my professors actually put it in a, in a very uh, practical perspective. Have you ever been in line with your, with your parents um, at the grocery store? And your mom or your dad is like, wait, 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 stay here. I'm, I need to go get, go, go get some eggs. And you're like, uh, uh, can you leave me my car? Like, leave, leave your card with me so that when I do get up to register, like, like I, I have something that I don't get embarrassed. And they, they walk off by the time you're able to request that. <laughs> but that word stay, what your parent is actually saying when they say, stay here, I'll be back. What they're actually saying, it's not saying, they're not saying stay right here, stay exactly where you are. What they're actually saying is stay here and continue going forward as if I was still here. So likewise, when Paul, when Jesus says, abide in me, you are to remain where you are as if he was still here, living faithfully, pursuing righteousness, bearing glory to his name. So Paul here, this is what he does. He says, if Jesus was here, I would continue to press on. Why? He says it's necessary. That word necessary means it is indispensable. What one cannot do without. It is a necessity. Is it, it is essential for me to stay here. So consider something, church. Is it necessary for you to remain in your current circumstances? in your grief, at your job. I would remind you that you are to be a sufferer who rejoices in your current circumstances. So what is at the heart of Paul's conclusion to stay? Verse 25, convinced of this, this I know. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So this is Paul's conclusion. This is why he's staying. It is for the joy in the faith and the progress. There's that word prokope again, meaning advancement. This is why he stays. I am to remain and continue to continue loving on you so that you may rejoice in what's coming, so that you may continue proclaiming the word of the Lord with boldness and without fear. That phrase, proud confidence, is reason to boast. Glory, 
Paul in in Paul they were able to glory in because Paul was in Christ. So by default, if they glory and rejoice and be confident in and are boastful in what Paul's doing, they're likewise boasting in what Christ is doing. So Paul's life, his imprisonment, his circumstances, it all exalted Christ. And it pointed to the reunion that would cause this overflow and reason to glory together, to glory with Paul because he was in Christ. So the recap of point number four, the joyful sufferer remains and endures and presses on with, with union with Christ in mind, understanding that it is essential, it is absolutely necessary to stay. In order, but you don't stay right where you're at. You progress. You grow in the joy and the faith. So now, because of my thanksgiving for you, because of my prayers for you, because of the magnification of Christ in my body, whether in life or in death, and because of my remaining here for the progress and joy in the faith, it is only necessary that Paul says, let me encourage you in light of what's coming because you're gonna need it. Point number five, encouragement. The joyful sufferer encourages. Verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This word conduct, the root word is polis, which is where we get the word metropolitan. It means city. You are to conduct yourselves and be faithful to the political duties of a citizen to that city. So when the Philippians, understandably, when they heard this, you are con to conduct yourselves, I would imagine that they automatically thought of their Roman citizenship, their, their, their faithfulness to Caesar and his empire. But Paul says, you are a citizen of a heavenly city, so act like it. This conduct is evidence of the unity for the gospel. Because he says, because of this, whether I see you soon or remain absent, I will hear of your faithfulness. That you are, sta that, <clears throat> excuse me, that you are standing firm in one mind, in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is the unity that Paul encourages here. That is the unity that is necessary to be able to conduct yourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So can people say that about you? Whatever their misunderstanding or proper understanding is of Christianity, are you presenting yourself? Are you, are you conducting yourself? Are you conducting the duties of a citizen that is a citizen of a heavenly city? Do they see something different in you? So because of opposition, it begs the question, well, Paul, this unity is tough. This unity is tough with all the opposition. What do we do about them? Verse 28, in no way alarmed, no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. 
So regarding their conduct, their unity without fear, this pagan, this unbelieving response is that the gospel is going to be destroyed. Their head honcho, their chief, their ruler, I guess ruler is not a good way to describe Paul, but this, this mighty minister, this mighty minister of the, of the gospel of Christ is in prison. So on the outside looking in, they must've thought we got him. We got him. This name of Christ is going to be snuffed out in only in, in a matter of days. It is a sign of destruction for the unbelievers, but for the Christians, for the believing community, it is a sign of salvation that their conduct, that their unity without fear is actually something that testifies of their saving faith. This gospel is not destroyed by imprisonment, but it's actually a sign of their salvation. Their faithfulness is a sign of their salvation, no matter their circumstances. And Paul goes even further that, in fact, your imprisonment has a purpose, and that purpose is from God. So I would ask you again, church, to reconsider your circumstances. God may, he may just be using it to affirm something in you, to affirm a doubt, to reassure you of your own salvation. So is it necessary for you to remain? For Paul, this is why, verse 29 and 30. For to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. This goes, this comes full circle with the life verse that I mentioned about Paul. Paul was to, was to live in such a way bearing the name of Christ to the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, to the kings, the emperors, and to the sons of Israel, meaning the Jews, suffering for Christ's sake. And here he introduces it, that same suffering that he is currently in to the Philippians. This is a call to unity. That word granted is is the word that we get for grace. So you're suffering, this suffering Philippians, this suffering Christians that you are about to experience, it is a gracious gift of God. Do we see suffering that way? Are we so discomforted by our, our pain, our suffering? Are we too quick to say, Lord, come quickly, Rescue me out of this. It may just be a gracious gift of God, a call to unity in light of what's coming. And that church finishes point number five. The joyful sufferer encourages other believers to be, a citi- to be citizens of a heavenly city, knowing that their suffering is a call to unity with Christ. Joyful suffering is not just for the Philippians. It's not just for Paul. It's not just for Christ. 
It's for you. It's for every single believer. Why? If you flip every single point on its head that I just mentioned, we'll see if this is a true believer. Let's go back through the points here. The first point was thanksgiving. Let's flip that on this head. Ingratitude, ungrateful. Point number two, prayer. Someone who does not pray. No prayer. Point number three, exaltation. Not in Christ, but in yourself. They exalt themselves. Point number four, endurance. Opposite, someone who quits, runs away at the sight of fear, at the sight of punishment or or imprisonment or suffering. Point number five, encouragement. Someone who tears down. All of these flipped on its head, would you be able to say that an ungrateful, someone who doesn't pray, exalts himself, quits at the sight of, at the moment of suffering and tears down other believers? Is that a believer? No. Every single believer who bears the name of Christ is to suffer and to suffer well. When death and suffering and pain remain someone else's problem, Christ remains someone else's savior. I want to conclude with a few passages that explain exactly this. Romans 6, verses 4 through 7, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ In the same way that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin." Colossians 3, verses 2 through 4. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Lastly, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Let us run with endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him Reflect on him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Understand that your suffering is participation. Understand that your suffering is participation in the suffering and in the victory of Christ. My beloved church, 
do you see your suffering as something that draws you closer to Jesus? Because that's all we got. So be encouraged, be thankful, understand the grace that was shown to you. Pray, thank God, exalt him because he will be exalted whether it's in your glorification or your destruction. Endure, endure, endure. Remain in your circumstances if necessary. If you feel that it is a a divine appointment, endure. Flip your perspective and see it as a call to unity with Christ. Pray for the joy and progress of others and encourage, encourage, never stop encouraging because you never never know when it's going to give an 18-year-old hope. An 18-year-old who is crushed in spirit and feels like God is far who desires to seek him, but looks face to face to the cross and understand that the rest of his life is gonna be hard, but it's suffering that brings you face to face with a crucified Lord, a resurrected King, and in that we rejoice. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you. We love you. So worthy to be praised, Lord. I pray that you encourage us, that you love us in our distress. That no matter how hard the grief, no matter how hard the pain, no matter how hard it is to flip our perspective, make us look at the cross and see your face for the joy that was set before your, your son on the other side of the cross, he endured it, became in the likeness of men and gave us life that we never could have on our own. But thank you so much for, for providing that very beautiful provision for in him and through him, we have life and life abundantly and you will be exalted whether in life or in death. So help us see that today. Flip our perspective because we need it. We need it, Lord. And we may not, we may not, we may feel like we don't need it now, but when, but when an elder cries in your arms, we're gonna need it then. When you're grieving from a miscarriage, you are going to need it then. So remind us, Lord, remind us today and every day until we see your glorious face and are united, but give us the strength to remain here for our progress, for our joy in the gospel and for the, and for the joy and faith of others. It is in your precious son's name we ask these things. Amen.